it's very clear that that song uh, is loved by you all and resonates. Uh, the truths there resonate within our own hearts, and it's a joy to sing them with you and others this morning that are so appropriate as we approach God's Word this morning in Revelation chapter 20. So if you're not already heading in that direction, go ahead and turn towards Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is Michael was preaching on for the last two weeks on the millennial kingdom in the first half of this chapter. But indeed, we have a, uh, both a victorious and a very sobering passage before us this morning. Revelation chapter 20 is both a victory when we see the defeat of evil, but also incredibly sobering as we see the final judgment before the great white throne. Let me pray as we open God's Word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful to be in Your presence and having the comfort of Your Holy Spirit this morning and are thankful for the truths that have been sung and prayers that have been offered to You and Scripture, Lord, that clearly speaks Your truth and we can find hope and rest and uh, sure footing and promises there, Lord. And we ask that you would do your work uh, this morning as we've just prayed that prayer of speak, O Lord, and into our hearts, Lord, your truths uh, that are unchanged, that still stick with us today, that still bear weight both now and into eternity. And so we ask that you just give us a mind to take up these things and a heart that would accept these things and a trust in you, Lord, a faith that is built uh, on your sure word this morning. Uh, we give this time to you and ask that you would reveal yourself to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you uh, know that all stories demand conclusions, don't they? And here we are at the, the end of the book, where the, or the end of God's story, and He's going to wrap up certain themes that we've seen since the beginning of the book, and we're going to see the conclusion to things, not all things, but certainly the conclusion of some major themes in history. I don't know if you're a book reader or a movie watcher, but you and I probably share the same frustration if the ending is not tied up well. You know what I mean by that? If, if the author or the writer or the director misses uh, for what we feel are some very obvious uh, conflicts or discrepancies, like, well, how did that all work out? Doesn't matter. Movie's over. So you can make up how it worked out. But that frustrates us, doesn't it, when, when, a, when a writer will not conclude. It's usually a movie director uh, for sake of time or sake of budget or Perhaps that storyboard just did not get into the, the, the end editing, but it frustrates us to, to not have things resolve, resolved or to leave things uh, that are unconcluded, inconcluded. But it is also at the same time a great relief when we can see a character redeemed, right? Think of that story, Les Mis, uh, how dark it is, but in the end there's redemption. 
I uh, think of maybe, maybe you're into courtroom dramas or uh, movies based on a, a Grisham novel or something like that. It's, 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 it, 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 I guess in the end, you can feel that tension release when there's justice served in the courtroom or when that verdict is served and you're saying, yes, that's, that's right, that's the way it should be. And that's, that's how the courtroom drama should work. But sometimes maybe uh, you're into those Hallmark movies. Anybody into the Hallmark movies? You know how those end, right? Yeah, they all end the same way. Um, it's usually a happily ever after kind of ending. But even so, that's a conclusion that lets our hearts relax and say, yep, that's the way it should be, and I'm glad it ended that way. Uh, there's, there's something in the human fabric, in, our, in our, the, the DNA of humanity that wants that conclusion that, that wants the end of the story and how things work out. And that's exactly what we have before us in Revelation chapter 20 this morning. So let's read God's Word together, picking up in verse 5, actually. Verse 5, and we'll read through verse 15, God's Word. It says in Revelation 20, verse 5, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and, he, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they, and, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Indeed, hard words to even read, let alone soak in and understand them and allow God's Word to impact our hearts and shape us this morning rather than our Word decide to shape God's Word this morning. 
That's the temptation of man ever since the beginning, ever since the garden, ever since Genesis 3 when Satan first came to Eve in the form of a serpent and said, did God actually say? And then when she repeated what God said, he said, actually, you won't, you won't die. Direct contradiction of what God had said. And we're still tempted by the, by the deceiver himself to run from God's Word and to replace God's Word with our own Word or to replace His own authority with our own authority and dictate, dictate, so listen to our own Word as to how we will live life or what will be true to us or, what, or how we will live our life. So it's my prayer this morning that God's Word would indeed shape us as difficult as it is to even read and study the words of the text before us. But going back to verse 7 through 10, we, have, we, ha- we want to celebrate this victory that is before us. And indeed we can because of the fate of the one, the deceiver, who has a- accomplished so many evil things throughout time. He meets a very quick end as he's, after he's released after the thousand years. It's interesting that, that, that Satan, you see it in verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, so clearly there's a chronology happening here, Satan will be released from his prison. Remember that Satan was thrown in his prison uh, back in uh, the early verses of chapter 20. In verses 1 through 3, it says that he was bound, he was thrown, he was chained and thrown into a bottomless pit and unable to impact the nations, unable to impact people, which is a very interesting text. And because of that, and Christ's rule on earth physically from Zion, from Jerusalem, there's going to be a suppression of death and ever really a a global uh, kingdom that Christ will rule. Peace will reign. Nations Nations are not going to be fighting each other because of God's presence. And that is going to be an amazing time. And it says that those in, that share in the first resurrection are going to rule with him during this time. So as soon as Satan is released, however, it's very interesting that what does he seek to do upon his release? Has a thousand, has a thousand years changed this being? Indeed not, right? It's almost that you wonder if he's crafting his plan while he's in that, that's a long time to think about it, isn't it? It's a long time. It's, 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 uh, it's a clear, uh, or it's a distinct set-apart uh, set time for Satan to be bound in and allow the nations to flourish without him hindering that by his deception. He's released from prison, and immediately he comes out. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And we'll, we'll pause there for a second. So he immediately comes out to deceive. Indeed, that is his, on, on his card, isn't it? That is what describes Satan, is the deceiver. He is the father of lives. If you would, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we'll be in John uh, just a couple of times this morning chapter 5, chapter 6, but we're going to start in chapter 8. So you might want to mark it or leave a finger in the book of John as we look to him for some to shed light 
on our immediate passage, but look at John 8, verse 42. Jesus having a, a discussion, really, or an, an argument with the Pharisees here and those who would refuse to believe that he was sent from God. Verse 42 says, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And this gets really intense here in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you that because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Think of that. He's a murderer from the beginning, and there's no truth in him, and when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. The very essence of Satan, the devil, you can turn back to Revelation chapter 20. The very essence of his nature is to deceive. A thousand years wouldn't change him. And what's interesting as well is that a thousand years doesn't do much for these nations who are ready and willing to be deceived at the same time. I think that might even be more shocking because Satan's bound in a bottomless pit for a thousand years, unable to, in a sense, reach. He, God's not giving him access to earth and these physical nations. While these nations are under Christ's rule, must be thousands upon thousands, even millions of people at this time who are under God's rule on earth, His righteous, His perfect rule. But look again, these nations are the ones who are deceived. They, they, they're from the four corners of the earth, meaning they're, they're everywhere. And that term Gog and Magog, that's, a, that's an inference to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. You can read that later. But it's probably not speaking of a specific king or a specific location, but an inference to say all who would be led astray to come and attack God's people, who have uh, really an agenda to move against God and they can't reach God, so they reach his people. Gog and Magog, Gog being the, the, the name of the prince in Ezekiel chapter 38, Magog being the land or the place or the, the kingdom that he's from, but here, because it talks about the four corners of the earth, I think it's best to take it as this is anyone and everyone who has it in them to be led astray and to be led by leaders of these nations in order to come against God's people. That's who these nations are, and that's what Gog and Magog represent here. And it says that they gather them, he's, he's gathering them for a battle. So there's a very specific purpose. This isn't for their own desires, if you will, kind of like Eve in the garden when it says she saw that it was, it was good for food. And there's, you could see the desires of the flesh and the desires to become wise are in play. Here, Satan has a specific purpose, and it's one thing. It's to deceive these nations so that they would come against God's people. 
interesting how when God allows this to happen, how quickly it can happen, how instantaneous it can be uh, accomplished, and, and Satan can move and deceive these nations that are primed and ready for deception. And I think that's something to pause and reflect on just for a minute. These nations, under Christ's perfect and righteous rule from Zion, are ready to come against God's people as soon as Satan gets a chance to deceive them. That a thousand, work, a thousand years work to reform their hearts. That a, in a sense, all but a perfect environment for men and women to live in, did that reform them? No. They're ready to be deceived at the end of this thousand years and ready for a deceiver to match that readiness in order to go forward against God's people. And I think there's a picture there of the human heart, right? That's how, that's how we in our sinfulness are wired. It's, it's both, it's a, it's a collaboration of deception, but at the same time, a willfulness in the heart of the, the, the human heart to, to accept that deception. I think this is what is so appealing to man is to suppress this accountability that is coming here in the, the second part of this passage. It's very interesting that these passages are lined up right back to back. They're together. But they have a thousand years to repent, a thousand years to come to Zion, a thousand years to kiss the sun, Psalm 2, to bow and say, you are our Lord. You are over all. But Psalm 2 talks about how it's calling out to kings to bow lest he rule you with a rod of iron. And all the while, all this thousand years is perhaps a feigned obedience to Christ the King who rules in Jerusalem. It's interesting that Satan is so quick to deceive, but he does this through causing man to doubt God's goodness, doesn't he? Even today, we are tempted to doubt God's goodness, or if we won't doubt his goodness, we might doubt his power. We, we, we can go between those two things is to say, God's not good in this situation because of what I'm going through, or God's not able. Maybe God's good, but he just isn't strong enough to move on the situation that I'm going through. But Satan will play on both of those weaknesses of man and perhaps even more uh, rebelliously that man thinks that, you know what, how about I just replace God? How about I see myself in God and replace him in my own definition? Perhaps some are tempted just to say, you know what, after death, there's just simply non-existence. That's easier to believe, isn't it? It's easier to accept, perhaps, um, things just go away and there is no accountability coming. There's no king to come underneath. But this is not going to last, as we will see in chapter or verses 11 through 15. This will only pacify the, the conscience temporarily. We, can't, we cannot bat away the accountability that we all must come before God 
whether in Christ or outside of Him. Look at verse 9. There's not much of a battle that takes place here. (laughs) Verse 9, And they march up over the broad plain of the earth. It's likely talking about the earth has gone under transformation uh, during the tribulation. It says, I don't know if you remember that passage where it says the islands will disappear and the mountains will be leveled. So we really think the topography of the earth will have changed at this, at this point in time. So perhaps there's ease of access for nations to build and communicate and n- navigate certain seas that are even unknown to us today. Uh, but that could also be a way in which these armies move upon Israel and God's people so quickly. It says, They came over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, being God's people, the beloved city, that's Zion, that's Jerusalem, as we would know it today. But look at this, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. (laughs) There is no battle. They assemble for battle. They assemble ready to take out God's people, but God intervenes and instantly wipes them out. That's never a good place to be if you look back in history. If, you're, if God is in this city and God's people are there and you're surrounding it, go back to the history books and you will see that God intervenes on behalf of his people in the past. And if you remember that story where the, the Assyrian armies were surrounding Jerusalem and Hezekiah prays and so does Isaiah and Isaiah 37 and instantaneously, 185,000 soldiers die, just like that. I think that's maybe perhaps a shadow of what's going to happen at the end of the millennium here. There is no real battle. There never was a battle. Hezekiah was saved. Jerusalem was saved. All of Judea was really dominated by this, this force, yet there's one little city, and that's Jerusalem, and God protects it for his own name. So we go from uh, verse 8 and 9 where they're coming up and surrounding to instantaneous destruction and defeat. There's, there's no battle, and that would remind us even of Sodom. Remember Sodom, how Lot was pulled out and then Sodom was destroyed with fire from heaven. But also there's not just defeat, there's complete destruction of the one who deceived them. And it's interesting how for all the attention, for all the time that Satan has been able to reign in a, in a sense or to rule and to deceive and to con the nations, all the evil that he has been able to accomplish, he makes a very quick end without a lot of drama. You know those Marvel movies or those DC comic movies? Uh, some of you are really into them, probably. But the endings can really, really tax a person, can't they? When it's just one powerful force fighting against another, and it's long and drawn out, and 10 minutes later, you're like, really? We've destroyed everything in sight, uh, an entire town, no worries about all the property that's being destroyed and all the people in those buildings that are being destroyed as these two heroes fight it out, or maybe one is only a hero. Not so here. Satan meets a very quick destruction. Verse 10, look at it. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur 
And he meets his co-conspirators, the beast and the false prophet who have already been there for a thousand years, and they're tormented day and night forever and ever. What a sobering passage that the deceiver meets a quick and definitive end to be thrown in a place where he will suffer forever. What you think about, isn't that, isn't that just of God? Just as much as we get a little bit of joy or a little bit of, like, yes, in a courtroom drama that we watch on TV or some movie we watch, we, we, when, when a wrong is righted, we say, yes, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be because that was wrong for so long, and now God has righted that. His main enemy, which was first introduced to us in Genesis chapter 3, I just found it interesting that here we find ourselves the third chapter from the end of the book is Satan's conclusion, and the first, or sorry, the third chapter from the beginning of the book is where we're introduced to Satan. I don't know if that's anything more than that, but it is interesting that he He's almost in the entire story of God's Word, minus four chapters, two before and two after, as we'll see chapter 21 and 22 in the weeks to come. But Satan meets his end in the third chapter before the very end of the book. And I think it's fitting, even more so than a courtroom drama, is the end of Satan. And I think that's where God puts this in His Word to to tell us that there is an end to this, and Satan will be ultimately defeated. Look down at verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15, it gets even more perhaps close to home because we're not talking about Satan anymore. He's met his judgment. Now we're talking about a throne and the subjects that are before the throne and books that are opened Verse 11 gives us the beginning of this ultimate courtroom experience. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. So he doesn't describe who was seated on it, but clearly it's God. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. That's very interesting that at the very last scene, now, I think what we're, we're doing here, we are mirroring in some ways Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, where Satan is defeated and it's winding back the way God created and intended things to be with this huge excursus of the entire Bible in between to tell us how the drama would play out. But now we're winding things down and getting them back to the restored order the way they should be. We were very close in the millennium, but not perfect. Remember, death was still present. Even though life was extended, death was still present. Enemies are still there. And now we're moving to conclude uh, the entire uh, purpose of earth and sky has, has been accomplished. It is not needed anymore. And soon there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But look at verse 11, how it says, Then I saw, these three words are very important, a great white throne. It's important that it's great and it's white and it's a throne. All of these descriptors come together to describe 
an elevated place of judgment and of authority. They describe a people, a mass of people that is on one level, all are equal, yet there is one throne that's elevated above these people. Great being it's all-encompassing. There's nothing missing from this, this throne room or this courtroom. Nothing, nobody missing who needs to be in this courtroom. And perhaps maybe the most important descriptor, although it's hard to say that it is, uh, perhaps maybe most important to our theology to accept and understand this is that it's white which would infer God's holiness, God's perfection, God's righteousness. And if God is holy and He's just and He's righteous, then the judgments that would issue from this throne are what? They're the same. So if we have a righteous judge, we have righteous judgments. We cannot miss that. We cannot miss that this is a great white throne. It doesn't say a great multicolored throne. It doesn't say a great shady throne or a foggy throne, something unclear to us. It says a great white throne, and in that we can understand this is the Holy One of God sitting on this throne ready to make judgments, and we don't even need earth and sky anymore. The purposes of them have gone. There's no there's no physical uh, realm to be dealt with here anymore. The point of earth and sky is gone. And now it's time to have this judgment. So not only do we have a perfect court in this courtroom, we have the final subjects who are before this throne. And I want to read John chapter 5 to help us again understand and shed light on this text. So if you're if you're close to John 5, turn there. If, if not, it might just be better to listen. John chapter 5, verses 24 to 29. John 5, 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What an interesting text that Jesus gives us. In fact, Jesus, we don't often reference this, Jesus gives us more information on the judgment and on hell than any other person in Scripture. Jesus, the one who's most often quoted as he's only loving, or 
Jesus accepts everyone, no matter what. Jesus gives us a thorough theology of the end, of judgment, of His judgment, and of hell if we reject belief in Him. Notice that it says in verse 12, I saw the dead, interesting statement, that John in his vision is somehow perceiving by the, the Spirit's inspiration to him through the, 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 this revelation, this, this vision, that he's seen dead. So there's not one more living person around. Everybody has died who has ever lived. So the first resurrection, remember it's already happened, the first resurrection, that's the resurrection that, John, that Jesus is referring to in John 5, where it's saying the dead will hear the voice of God and live. That would be the first resurrection. Second being now here before us, this is the, the, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So there's no differences. There's important people and unimportant people. There's nobles and peasants. There's really everyone here standing before Christ in order to be judged. Perhaps the most sobering words that we see here that still impact us are that there's books. The books were opened. The books were opened. And then another book was opened. So there's a delineation between there's books and there's the book. There's books that talk about what deeds were done. The, je- the, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. It says that two times, one in 12 and also at the end of 13. Each one of them, they are judged according to what they had done. You have to understand that we have what, again, we have a great white throne. So we have perfect record keeping is what's also taken place which in, in one sense immediately would strike a fear of God in the heart of a believer. And it should strike fear into all humans to run towards Christ, who is the only one who can save from this judgment. Now, just to, to, to think on this just a little bit longer, to understand, wait a second, how are we going to look at books? I thought salvation is by grace through faith. yes. But this shouldn't trouble us really at all. We understand our Bibles, right? James, the whole book of James is really dedicated to this topic that faith does what? Faith actually has works, right? A genuine faith will always produce genuine works, which those works are now recorded in the books and names are recorded in the book of life. So trusting in Jesus records a name in the book of life. By having that type of being that type of person or having that character would then issue forth in a life of good works that on the last day would say, This is evidence of why or why not this person is recorded in the book of life. It doesn't get you in the book of life, but it evidences as to the the name being recorded in the book of life. Jesus tells, again, the Pharisees in John chapter 6, that to be doing the works of God is to what? To believe on him who was sent. You want to work the work of God, Jesus says? 
then do the work of believing. That's all there is, is to believe. And the Pharisees want a list saying, help us get this list right or show us a sign. Prove to us that you're the one. And Jesus says, the work that you need to work is simply belief, which is really no work at all. But being recorded in the book of life, again, evidences itself in a lifestyle of obedience and good works done for God. Then we have a verdict, which again increases the sobriety of this text. We're moving towards that verdict. But let me read this from John 3, 16 through 21. Listen as I, as I read. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now listen in on verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So that it's clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It doesn't mean that just because we're saved by faith, immediately nothing else happens. It's that by being saved through faith, the ability to now say no to sin by the power of God's Spirit in us allows a life of works that would, that would again, give evidence towards that belief in the name being written. Verse 14, then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So death itself is killed, ultimately. A very interesting passage. They're thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It doesn't say if anyone did not have enough works, He's thrown into the lake of fire. It doesn't say if he did one wrong thing, he's thrown in the lake of fire. It says if your name isn't written in the book of life. That's what decides the verdict. Think of the judgment that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 where he's separating sheep from, sheep from goats. He's also saying he's referring to works that would go back to that name being written in the book of life. That's a, that's a hard text to even read, isn't it? And to consider. Um, but there are some things I, I think we should just continue to, to think about what we must grasp out of this passage. And if you, if you can, hang in there as I look at what I see as seven 
seven just concepts that we must grasp or this passage informs us on. And I think it's, it'll be helpful for us this morning. Number one is this. Satan is under the sovereignty of God. Satan is under the sovereignty of God. And sometimes we forget that, right? Uh, sometimes we think that the forces of evil are so outnumbering the forces of good that evil will by sheer numbers win in the end. Doesn't it bring God more glory if the numbers are against him and his people? And just like in verse 8, 20, verse 7 and 8, it talks about all these forces, a whole horde coming toward God's people, and God intervenes and saves them all. We have to remember that Satan is under the authority of God. He's the one that seized all these verbs that happened to Satan. Other than him being the deceiver, all the verbs in this passage are passive towards Satan. He's seized. He's thrown. He's kept there. Then he's released. God is over this being who is so against him and so rebellious to him. Here's another point. Everywhere evil still exists, God must war against it and will win. Everywhere evil exists, God must war against it. If he's a holy God, if he's a just God, he must move in and take out that evil for good. I think that happens in, we, we would know this in three, three realms, in the world, in Satan, and something perhaps harder to believe in the human heart itself. God is determined to take his enemies and make them sons and daughters through the power of Jesus Christ and him alone. It's necessary to, to understand Genesis 3 to really gr grasp the concepts here in this, uh, just give us the good background of understanding how God is now in a sense, fixing what was unfixed or broken in, in the beginning, that God is rounding out, he is, he is coming to conclude all of these things. Of course, evil being one of the most major problems. You have to understand that a worship problem started in Genesis 3, right? We were worshiping God, we were walking with Him in the garden, there was no shame Things were perfect, and sin entered and crumpled and broke, just destroyed all of that, mangled, twisted, bent the way God designed people to live with him. And he is receiving glory as he solves our ultimate need in Christ, but also brings things back in time to, in a sense, untwist what sin has twisted throughout time. So a worship problem is what began in Genesis chapter 3, and it still continues. And this rebellion against God will continue to the very end until the deceiver is destroyed, ultimately. Here's a third point. God's judgment is holy. I beg of you to lean into that and, and trust His justice this morning. God's judgment is holy. He is holy. His, his judgments are holy. He's pure. He's perfect. He sits on a white throne. 
and he will not let his name be maligned or defamed or adjusted or shifted anymore. Here's a fourth, and I think this is something we can really hang on to this morning. The ending is conclusive. There comes an end to this. We know what's written at the end of the book. We've read the last few chapters, and the last few chapters are before us here. And it's good that we know that there will be an end of evil, an end to deception, an end of death itself. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. And there will be, there will, there will be this triumph of God over his enemies, and we will, there, we will be there as well to rejoice with him. There is an end. Human pain, suffering, injustice, there's an end to that courtroom drama. It doesn't go on indefinitely. The, the movie is not forever, if you will. There's a conclusion, and we get to it this morning. This gives us hope. We have to know how the, the beginning comes to an end, right? We have to know how this conflict is resolved, how the tension shifts, and in Christ it is put to rest. Here's a fifth, just a couple more and perhaps most pointedly this morning, the final judgment and hell are real. There's been some who grapple with these texts, and, there's, and at the end, it, it comes down to a couple of things. Yes, God's real, but He's so loving that He's going to work a way out that He just kind of scares us with hell, but in the end, everyone will be saved. No hell. That's called universalism. It's a dangerous, dangerous heresy. And you can see why it's tempting to accept because then I've got everything figured out. I'm like, great. There's there, God, God's this scary God that like chases people and, and then at the end, he's just like, ah, just kidding. It was, all, it was all just a joke. I think that makes a joke out of God. I think that makes a joke out of his holiness. Universalism is a heresy. Why? Because it's contrary, it's directly contrary to Scripture that says, no, these things are forever. And there's, there's passages that you could study for later that, that Jesus talks about suffering, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth goes on forever and ever. It's horrible. It, it's, not, it's not universalism, nor is it annihilationism, which is, you know, yes, these things are true when they're good, but if it's bad stuff, you simply go into non-existence. Again, easier to believe than the realities of a real hell. You think about it this way. Why do, we, why do we need elements to remember a Savior if He didn't save us from anything? Jesus saved us from the wrath of God. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we have him to cling to. Two more things. I don't even think this would be written if man inspired Scripture. We wouldn't write this, would we? We would not write this. God puts this down. It is written in His Word, so we must trust it. As much as our favorite verse in Scripture, we have to trust Revelation chapter 20. 
it's as inspired as any other page of Scripture. Whether it's Psalm 23 that you might love, or John 3.16 that we've read earlier this morning, Revelation 20 is inspired as well. And lastly, we must grasp, and I think we do in light of these passages, we must grasp our desperate need of a great Savior, right? We can feel that. We know that we have sinned. We know that we're separated from God outside of Christ, and we sang about it in many different ways this morning. But how amazing and thankful we can be when we understand that Christ has saved us from the wrath of God. He's saved us from his own eternal punishment by giving us eternal life. And God did this to his very own son. God had more skin in the game than anyone. He gave his own son for this. And today we get a chance to, to celebrate this again in the elements before us in a way that, that, that I hope would cast more light on the grace given to us in Christ this morning. That it should, it should, it should say these elements mean something. It's not just juice or wine from, from a vine or unleavened bread just sitting there and mindlessly. It represents the depth that God was willing to go that he has been given indeed for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we can only entrust ourselves to you as we come to words that are hard to read and uh, even hard to understand because they're visions and they're uh, in a quite seeming distant future. But Lord, uh, they're true nonetheless, and, and we need your grace to empower our hearts and even bow before you in humility to accept uh, your plan, your perfect plan, your holy plan that issues from your throne. Lord, we are so grateful that we come before you as a that, that is now a throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. Lord, you say that we can approach you at a throne of grace because you are our high priest. Because you're our high priest, we can now celebrate what's before us this morning and rejoice in you as much as we can see our sin and our failures and who we were, Lord, we can see who we are because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would encourage all with that truth this morning. Father, we give these things to you and pray that you would bless our time as we remember your name and what you did in Jesus' name. Amen.